Before we turn to our passage this morning, let me, uh, let me go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on our time. Father, we, uh, we come to you this morning and we submit to you. And we thank you that you have given us your word, inspired by you, communication to us about who you are and about who we are and how we can know you. Pray for your blessing on our time. I pray that you would work in our midst by your spirit. Pray that our hearts would be open to you, that we would be receptive to what you have for us, that we would be responsive to what your spirit says to us, that we would be obedient to your word. Lord, I ask that you would work this morning, that you would be glorified, that you would draw our minds to you away from the things of this life, draw, draw our minds to you and our hearts to you. May this be a time of worship in our minds and in our hearts and our body here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn to the, the book of James. We're going to continue on our series that we started uh, just last week. And uh, last week I covered, you know, the whole book. Plus, um, I didn't really cover the whole book, but kind of skim through the whole book to give you an idea kind of what we were, you know, what, what, what the book is about, the direction we're headed with it. And, and, uh, and then I covered eight verses. Well, today I'm going to gear way down and we're going to do nine, 10 and 11. Okay. So we're going to kind of pause a little more carefully in those verses though. We're going to hit other places in the book, but um, just to give you kind of an expectation of where we're headed this morning. I was reading on uh, history.com. I, I've never been to history.com before, but I, I, I was curious what they, uh, what some of the details were about this uh, earthquake that happened. I, I don't know if you guys remember uh, a really bad earthquake that happened in 1988, December 7th, 1988, and uh, that was in the, the country of uh, Armenia. And um, so I, I want to read you this article on that topic. This is again from history.com. Two earthquakes hit Armenia. On December 7th, 1988, killing 60,000 people and destroying nearly half a million buildings. The two tremors, only minutes apart, were measured at 6.9 and 5.8 in magnitude and were felt as far away as Georgia and Turkey and Iran. It was 11.41 a.m. when the first more powerful earthquake hit, three miles from Spitak, a city of about 30,000, and 20 miles northwest of Kirovakan or something like that. The epicenter was not far below the surface, which accounts uh, in part for the terrible destruction. Also, only four minutes later, the 5.8 magnitude tremor struck nearby, collapsing buildings that had barely managed to hold during the first quake. An eight-mile rupture of the earth, several feet wide in spots, was later found to have been caused by the quakes. Speedtalk experienced near-total destruction. Most of the stru structures in the city were either cheaply constructed or had brick or stone roofs and nearly all collapsed from the shaking. In Leninikan, now called Gumri, Armenia's second largest city and close to 300,000 residents, about 80% of the buildings failed to stand. 80%. The sheer scale of destruction overwhelmed the country's ability to respond. Worse still, officials controlled by the Soviet government at the time delayed giving permission for rescuers and relief workers to enter the area. In fact, 10 days after the quakes, all foreigners were ordered out. Those rescuers who were able to enter worked for over a week trying to find survivors. The last survivor was pulled out from under rubble on December 15th. So it happened on the 7th. This was the 15th when they found the last one. 
Many experts believe that the death toll may have far exceeded the initial 60,000 estimate, in part because thousands of people experienced crushing injuries during the quake. These victims often experienced kidney problems following the trauma and died when local health officials were not equipped to treat them. And due to the Soviet Union's own financial problems at the time, this is late 80s, 1988, due to their own financial problems at the time, Moscow did not send any significant relief to the poverty-stricken country of Armenia in order to rebuild after the quakes. So they were left on their own. And in 2008 and 2009, I had the chance to go and visit Gumeni, this city that had been 300,000 people and uh, in which 80% of the buildings had been destroyed. I was there on a, on a missions trip and actually went there twice on missions trip in 08 and 09. And the city is still not rebuilt. That was 20 years later. It's now 30 years later. The city is still not rebuilt. And so Christians there are extremely poor. I know, I know one family there lives on the eighth floor of an apartment building. And since this earthquake, their buildings obviously survived the earthquake. Since the time of that earthquake, the dad has carried water up eight flights of stairs to his family every day for 20 years. That's poverty. That's poverty. 20 years and they have by no means recovered. And seeing that level of poverty that our Christian brothers and sisters live with year in and year out has changed my own perspective on my own level. And particularly at that time, we were missionaries in Russia. We thought we were poor, right? And we looked at these Armenian Christians. I looked at these Armenian Christians and and had a completely different perspective. Compared to the Armenians, our Russian friends back in Russia were well off. They were wealthy. And compared to our Russian friends back in Russia, we were well off. We were the wealthy. And we as missionaries, if we would have compared ourselves to many of our American friends, the American friends were wealthy. So you look at the different levels of poverty and we can understand it kind of in new terms. And my point isn't to try and make us feel guilty or anything like that about the wealth that we have, about the financial wherewithal that we have in this country, but rather it's to open our eyes to our own relative wealth. And thus to lead us into talking about what James has to say about the rich. And James has a lot to say about the rich. He talks about the rich quite a bit. The book is not very long, and he talks about it in at least three or four very significant passages. He says, first of all, about the rich, he says that they are self-assured. They're self-assured. If you flip to uh, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, he says, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And so he has some comments there for these self-assured rich people that he's talking about. The, the people he's writing to, the people he's writing about, they have the world by the tail, right? If you remember a little bit of the context of the book of James, the, uh, the Christians probably from Jerusalem had been kind of run out of Jerusalem because of, of the persecution. They'd been driven into uh, other areas and they had, you know, had to adopt new cultures, new towns as their hometown and stuff they had to leave their home they had to leave their business had to leave their job or whatever leave their life back in jerusalem and in that area and go to somewhere else and start all over right and so in that context 
they were suddenly poor and they were suddenly outcast in ways they hadn't been before when they were back in Jerusalem with their home church. And so they were, they were kind of on their own and, and, and they were at the whim of the rich. And so these rich people that he's writing about and maybe even writing to in this passage here, they, they were, you know, the kind of, they, they were in charge. They knew how to make a plan. They knew how to execute the plan and they knew how to reap the rewards of the plan. Right. And so, uh, that, that certainly wasn't generally the case for the for the church that he's writing to or the people that he's writing to. Uh, but these rich people, they were kind of in charge, right? They put all their stock in their own abilities without leaving room for the Lord's will or the Lord, Lord closing doors or changing things. They left out their own humility because they knew how to get things done. And so in the face of that pride, James reminds them that that really they are just a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And instead, they ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, they are boasting in their arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So these rich people he's writing about, they were sure of themselves. They had control of situations. They knew what was going on. They, they were sure of what they could accomplish and what they had accomplished And they were sure of what was coming to them. So he says the rich that he's writing about, first of all, they're boastful and they're arrogant and they're self-assured. He says, second of all, they misuse power. They're self-assured and they misuse power. Flip back to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He talks about when they... When they show partiality to the rich and over the poor, he says, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so here they were tempted in their context to give preference and give uh, pride of place to rich people who might come into their congregation. And he says, wait, it's the rich people who are dragging you into court. It's the rich people who are causing problems for you. It's the rich people who are oppressing you. And so these rich people he's talking about, they were misusing power, right? You can imagine that, you know, these Christians who've been run out of Jerusalem and, and been scattered and, and now they're, they're more vulnerable even than they were. They're economically vulnerable. They're relationally vulnerable, right? They're, they're, they're looking for employment or they're looking for a way to make ends meet. They don't have their house that they had and all that kind of stuff. And in that kind of context, you have these rich people who would oppress them, who would hold them down, who would make money off of them or who would mistreat them or who would use them for you know, extra cheap labor or whatever. They would misuse power that they had over these Christians who were vulnerable to them. And so I, I think about our situation and, and uh, you know, I, I, I don't believe any of us in here is misusing power deliberately. Uh, or, um, or, you know, misusing power over poor people around us or, or over others around us. But you can see how it would be possible to do so. You could see how um, having that kind of position, it'd be really easy to slip into that. And, uh, and so he's, he's writing to these people who were definitely doing that to these Christians. They were holding them down. They were making a buck off of them. They were uh, dishonoring them. They were dishonoring Jesus. And so they were misusing power. So he says, first of all, about them, that they were self-assured. Second of all, they're misusing power. And thirdly, he says, there will come a reckoning. They, are, they await a reckoning. 
there's a, a very uncomfortable passage to read. We're going to flip to that. Chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 6. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Those are not the most encouraging words I've read in the New Testament. I don't know about you. But think about, think about the miseries that are awaiting them. How often do you start a paragraph and say, think, you know, weep and cry for the miseries that await you. Here are the miseries. God will vindicate the mistreatment of his hirelings. Right? This rich guy hired people. God will vindicate that mistreatment. This man, this rich man lives in luxury and in self-indulgence, laying up treasure in the last days and fattening his heart in the day of slaughter. And that will be his undoing. He's preparing himself for slaughter. His gold and his silver corrode and testify against him and will actually eat his flesh. (laughs) He has condemned and he has murdered the righteous person who doesn't and can't resist him. And so that's kind of some of the background. That's, That's James' general take on the rich people that these Christians were dealing with. There weren't many rich in their congregation their congregation was mostly poor people and they were in a culture where they were sort of being oppressed in all these different ways by the rich people around them and so james writing into that context tells uh tells us some very powerful and painful things about the plight of these rich people in that context right and so it's not a very bright picture it's not a very positive picture it's not you know it's not exciting to you know, to, to read this as a rich person and you're, you're not encouraged in your heart, right? But that's sort of the foundation. That's the backdrop in which James is going to write chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, our verses for today. And so flip to James chapter 1. We're going to look at these three verses. Now, if you remember from last week, he started off the passage there by saying, consider it all joy when you encounter trials. Right, so that's an unexpected, that's counterintuitive, right? So you're supposed to put this thing in the joy column. Well, what thing, James? Oh, all the trials you're going through. Take those and put them in the joy column. Consider it joy, right? So it's it's almost ironic. Well, he starts chapter one of verse nine the same way. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation or in his high position, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And so that's our passage for today. And we're going to look at rich and poor in James. And initially we're going to look at rich and poor and some surprising boasts. He talks about the fact that they are to boast in certain things and what are they to boast in well first of all 
the poor are to boast that they are exalted in Christ. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation or in his high position or in the fact that he is lifted up. Let the lowly brother boast in the fact that he is high, that he's lifted up, that he's exalted. That's what he's to boast in. He's going to say in chapter 2 and verse 5, he's going to say a similar thing. He, he says that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom. So there, there's a great blessing that comes with being a poor Christian. A poor Christian. And I was doing lots of reading about this this week. And commentators were talking about how it kind of seems like the gospel seems to spread more or more frequently maybe amongst the poor. That was an observation and they talked about, well, whether that was the case or whether that was not the case. But then one commentator made the comment, he said that very often being a Christian leads to poverty. Now, that was kind of provocative, right? So if you think about this kind of context, and I think about some context in Russia, I, I didn't know a single Christian who had a lot of money in Russia. And in that context, in Russia and, and in other places, you have to lie to get by. When we were, lived in Russia in the 90s, for some people, the, the, their income tax was over 100%. You think, how can that possibly be? Well, it can possibly be because the government taxed so heavily that everyone lied on their taxes and the government knew that and they still needed their money, so they raised the tax percentage. And they lied about it and it was a game back and forth, right? And so you actually, everybody was expected to lie on their income tax and you were expected to pay more than 100% of what you actually made because the government knew you were lying anyway. And if you're going to get ahead in that situation, you can do that. Lots of people figure that out. You just have to be more creative about the way you lie, right? Well, the Christian is not going to lie on his income taxes. He's not going to deceive his government. He's not, going to, he's not going to defraud the government. He's not going to lie in that way. He's going to tell the truth. And so if you are a Christian in Russia in the 90s, you're going to be poor. You're going to be poor because the government is going to take it all from you. And you'll end up selling cigarettes on the street or some such thing to try and get by. Right? And so in a lot of places, being a Christian leads to poverty. Because you won't do that slick deal that would make you rich. Or you won't tell that lie that would make you rich. Or you won't deal with that particular business person or in that particular business that would make you rich. And so you end up being poor because of your integrity. You end up being poor because of your honesty. Because of your faith. And we, we may not live in that context. But things change. And if you look at our economy and you look at some economic decisions and things that are in the wind, they could change big time and they could have that kind of influence on you. And all of a sudden, you might begin to suffer financially because of your integrity. You might begin to suffer on the job because you're a Christian. You might lose your good job and have to take a not-so-good job. But even in that context... For the Christian, what we boast in is not our job. What we boast in is not our bank account. It's not our good education. Those things don't matter in the long run. 
What we boast in is what God has done in us. What we boast in is in Christ and him having saved us. We are now adopted children of God because of what Jesus has done. And the poor man is about a half a step from realizing that. The poor Christian doesn't have any money to hope in. Doesn't have any education or status to hope in. He only has Jesus to hope in. And so his boast in his, is in his very exalted position that he has in Christ. And that was challenging to me because the same is true for all of us. And that's what takes us into the next piece here. So you have the poor who are exalted in Christ, and then you have the rich who are humbled in Christ. Let the rich boast in his humiliation. Most of us are rich. Of course, we wouldn't think that because we have other people to compare to who have more than us. But compared to those Christians in Armenia who are carrying water up eight flights of stairs for the last 20 years because their country's been destroyed, we're rich. And he says we are to be humbled in Christ. We are to boast. We are to rejoice in our humiliation or in our low position. And that's a place I want to get in my mind. Just as the poor man did not boast in his economic status, because he doesn't really have one, the rich man shouldn't boast in his economic status, though he does have one. His identity must not come from his earthly status. His boast is to be that he has nothing within. Our boast, my boast as a rich man, is to be that I have nothing to commend myself to God. I only have what he has given me in Christ. That's all I have before God. And so that is to be my boast. And for the rich man, he kind of has to set aside all the trappings. He has to kind of set aside all that other stuff that we kind of use to commend ourselves to other people. We have to set all that aside and understand that our only way of being acceptable to God is through Jesus himself. And that's our boast is, is in our poverty. I am poor in soul, poor in spirit. And because of that, because I have nothing to offer there, all I have to offer, all I have to boast in is Christ himself. And so I am humbled in Christ. The rich should have as their plea before God that their riches in this life do not benefit them in God's sight. In fact, Jesus said something about a rich man in heaven. He said it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I'm that rich man. I'm that rich man. And so both of them, though the rich man is humbled in Christ and the poor man is exalted in Christ, are, both of us are boasting only in Christ. It's the only boast we have. It's a humbling boast because I would really like to commend myself to the world and I would really like to commend myself to you and, and I want you to think well of me and I don't like it when you're disappointed in me and, and all of those sorts of things. But when it comes down to it, I'm poor and my only boast, my only thing to commend myself is Jesus himself. And so boasting in Christ is their really their only boast. And this reminds me of an Old Testament passage from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. 
Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I want that to be my boast, and I want that to be your boast. Of all the other things we could boast about, those other things get in the way. I only want to boast that I understand and know Him. I want to boast in Christ. I want that to be my boast. So we have some surprising boasts there. And then finally, we have an interesting irony that plays out in the last part of this passage. We have rich and lowly and insecure. And this is the same person. Let me continue on. Second half of 10 through 11. Uh, so the, the rich in his hum- humiliation, the rich man is to boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So here's what James says about the rich. First of all, he's passing away. He's passing away like a flower of grass. He's passing away. The rich man thinks that he's arranged his finances in such a way that he can endure the storm, that he can weather financial hardship or whatever's coming. He can endure. He can even thrive. The truth is, though, that even the rich man in his wildest success is like Psalm 103, verse 15 and 16, which says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. And it knows its place no more. Or he's like Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord is blown on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We may think we've arranged things, we've taken care of things, we've provided for ourselves, we've, we've made it so that we will last, we will endure, but the fact is we won't. We're passing away passing away not only are we passing away the rich man is vulnerable to to the elements vulnerable to the elements this is the second irony all those passages talk about the, the hot wind blowing and how it just kind of withers things and they're dead right rich man thinks that he is kind of insulated himself from hard times because of his financial decisions, because of the different things he's done, because of the way his business has gone or, you know, his marketable skills or whatever those things are. He thinks he's insulated himself from, from hard times and from difficulty. But the fact is, in the end, he is still vulnerable to the elements. And the more he relies upon that insulation that he has installed, the more vulnerable he is to the elements of trial and pain and sickness and death, the elements of life. The more he's put his hope in his insulation, the more he is at risk, the more he's vulnerable. And so we here, I, am affluent. And we in our affluence need to remember that we are not, in fact, protected from the painful and harmful elements of life. Pain still comes, and sickness still comes, and death still comes, hard times still come. Heartache comes and we are vulnerable. 
So he's passing away. He's vulnerable to the elements. And finally, he has fading beauty. He has fading beauty. The beauty of his appearance is destroyed when this hot wind passes over and scorches it and it withers and it falls. And and it used to look like a beautiful flower. And now it's just some brown crumpled thing on the ground. The beauty of his appearance is gone. Wealth gives us the ability to surround ourselves with beautiful people and with beautiful things and, and allows us to clean up beautifully and to dress ourselves beautifully so that we look appealing to others. That's what wealth does. But when the sun comes out, when the scorching wind blows, the beauty of the flower dries up. When the real trials of life hit, the beautiful trappings of riches and all that beauty that we were able to buy ourselves disappear and we're left bare. It's a scary situation. Usually when I read this, I of course think of other people in the position of the rich and I think of myself as the lowly brother who's supposed to boast in his high position. And that's very encouraging, right? Well, and there are situations in which that's true. And, but it's also true that when I think about the conditions of some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and I think about my own condition, and I think about the charges that James made about the fact that we were kind of, uh, that these rich people were living in self-indulgence and they were fattening themselves in the last day, in the day of slaughter. And I wonder how much I'm like that. So I want, to, I want to close with just a few observations, conclusions. Some people, uh, called liberation theologians, have taken this passage and other passages in the Bible that talk about the dangers of wealth and the blessings to the poor, and they've said, well, obviously then, the wealthy are evil and the poor are righteous, and they've built this whole theology called liberation theology based upon that. Well, that's not, that's not what James is doing here at all. James is talking about the dangers of riches, the temptations of riches in our own lives. And so, of course, I don't want to read and I don't want us to read this passage like the liberation theologians do. And I don't think we're tempted to read it that way. But in our haste to say that's not the way it should be, I don't want us to run too far the other direction and ignore what this really does have for us. Because the fact of the matter is, generally speaking, we are the rich. And so we need to examine our own lives and examine the way we spend our money and the way we spend our our power, the way we live our lives and what we boast in, and think about how we fit in this passage and in what ways James is talking to us. And so, to the poor, God's message from James has to do with the poor learning not to identify with their socioeconomic status. Oh, I'm just poor, downtrodden, can't pay my rent, I can't... Oh, you know, like this is just who I am. Somebody needs to help me out and kind of beat down and, and kind of making pleas and, and, and pitiful, right? We have a boast, poor Christian, in Christ. And that doesn't mean it might not be hard to pay the rent. It might still be hard to pay the rent. But that means that before God Almighty, you are accepted because of what Jesus Christ has done in your life to save you, to redeem you, so that the circumstances of life that would weigh you down, that would beat you down, don't really matter. The poor man, just like the rich man, is like a mist passing away. And soon this life, even if it's 70, 80, 110 years, will pass away and we'll be on to the real existence for eternity. Eternity. 
for eternity. And you'll look back and you'll see your time of poverty on, on earth and you will, you will thank God for the blessings that he gave you in the midst of that poverty. So, to the poor, our boast is in Christ. That's James' message here. To the rich, which is most of us, our identity is not to be found in our rich and our high position. We're very comfortable. And we, we have problems and we would like more things to be put in place and we'd like to be able to buy more things or... Or, or pay off these things faster, or, you know, we, we could always use more money. We have wealth. We have wealth. That guy in Armenia would just love to have, you know, plumbing that went to the eighth floor because he's tired of carrying water for the last 20 years, 30 years now. That's poverty. And so we need to not to, as rich people, we need not to identify with our rich and our high position, but rather we are to understand the temptations that come in connection with our wealth. Right? We're tempted to rely upon it. We're tempted to lean upon it, even if we don't think we have very much. We still are tempted to lean upon it. There's danger in connection with wealth. We are to understand those pitfalls, understand those temptations. And likewise, we are to boast only in Christ. We are to boast only in Christ. We have other things we could boast in. Sometimes I boast in those things. Sometimes I'm tempted to look down on other people who maybe aren't making wise financial decisions, you know, like I've made. (laughs) And I'm tempted to look down on them because if they just did this and this, that would all be taken care of, right? Well, there, there, there may be truth in that. There may not be truth in that. What's my boast in? God has been so faithful to me. Not just materially, not just in providing for us. He has been faithful to me in Christ. He has redeemed me from the pit of destruction that I deserve. And he's made me his own. And I get to be an adopted child of God. He's faithful to me. Who am I to look down on this person? Who am I to think less of that person? Who am I to boast in something else other than Christ? So that's my challenge to us, the rich this morning. Don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? I'm not talking about, I'm not running down us as rich people. I'm saying that we need to open our eyes to the reality of the temptations and the pitfalls that come in connection with the fact that we are, relatively speaking, wealthy. We need to think very seriously about those and we need to look at how we spend our money and how we spend our influence and how we relate to people and what we're boasting in. And we need to examine those things and we need to open our hands before God with those things and say, Lord, how would you have me do this differently? There are other passages we're going to look at in James that talk about the rich and the poor and the relationship between the rich and poor Christians, what that's supposed to look like. That's another sermon for another day. But but we need to hold our wealth with open hands before God and say, Lord, what would you have us do? What would you have us change? Because I don't want to be that guy who's fattening himself for the day of slaughter. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the one who's socking away treasure and the day of judgment's coming. I don't want to be that guy. 
Finally, what are you boasting in? Really, deep down, we're in church, so we all know I'm boasting in Christ, right? You know, it's the, it's the Sunday school answer. We all know the true answer, but I, but I want you to, that's the right answer. I don't know if it's a true answer, but I want you to look deep down inside and find what is the true answer. Really, what do you boast in? What, what gives you comfort for the day to come? What gives you the strength to wake up and face the new challenges of life for the next day? I can pay the bills so I can face this day. Obviously, it's a good thing to be able to pay your bills. Is that my boast? Is that what gives me peace about the day to come? Is it that I have a good education and I have marketable skills and so if I lost this job, I could find another job? Is that what I'm boasting in? Is that what makes me, you know, breathe easy through life because I could always get another job? Or my house is paid off or whatever. What are you boasting in? What gives you comfort? What gives you peace as you face the challenges of life and face a new day? Our boast is to be Jesus himself. It's to be Jesus himself. Not my accomplishments, not my bank account, not my financial planning. It's to be Jesus himself. That's the reason I can face the next day. That's the reason I can live life in peace because of what Jesus has done in me. My boast is not in any any of those other things. My boast is in Jesus himself because I stood before him a guilty sinner because of what I had done. The way I had lived my life, my heart choices stood before him guilty and he sent Jesus to pay that penalty, the penalty that I deserved. And Jesus paid that penalty and he gave me forgiveness in Christ and he gave me righteousness in Christ and he took all of my penalty and my guilt on himself. And because of that, I get to stand before God boldly. That's what I want to boast in. And that's what I want each of us to boast in. It's our only reliable boast. Let's pray. Father, we don't always like to talk about uh, money. We don't always like to talk about wealth, and I, I don't even like to talk about it, especially because I kind of fit into that category. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take to heart what we have learned from your word this morning, and it's not the final say, but it is what James says in, in this passage here. Lord, I want to boast in Christ alone. I don't want to boast in any other accomplishments or any other, any other thing that might give me peace, that might give me power in this life, that might give me comfort to face tomorrow. I want to boast in Jesus Christ alone because those other things might all change. Those other things might actually get in the way in me boasting in you. Lord, I pray that that would not be the case. I pray that you would help us all, as rich as we are, as poor as we are, to see that our only boast, our only hope is Christ himself and to cling to him. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you caution us about things that would be dangerous to to us. Thank you that you tell us about things that are dishonoring to you, that we can avoid them. And I pray that you would work in us by your spirit, that we would avoid those things, that we would instead cling to you and make our boast in you. Lord, help us to know what to do with our money. Help us to know what to do with our, 
our influence that we have because of who we are, because of our, our jobs or our positions, or even just by the fact that, that we're Americans. Help us to be good stewards of what you've given us and help us to boast not in any of those things, but in Jesus Christ alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You're dismissed.